The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, Landomatic. I'm gonna make this thing fly, do you hear me? Then I'm gonna set it afire and never have another thing to do with aeroplanes. So spoke one of the greatest aircraft builders in the history of aviation. His ubiquitous aircraft were eventually to be found in almost every corner of the world, and there is hardly a pilot alive who hasn't at some time flown in, behind, alongside, or more likely trained in one of his popular light aircraft. The man himself, christened Clyde Vernon, died in the same year I was born, 1954, aged 74. He started life some 24 years before the Wright brothers were to get their improbable Wright Flyer airborne four miles south of Kitty Hawk in North Carolina. His family hailed from France and Germany and at the age of two they moved to the rural area of Kansas where Clyde grew up in an age of mechanical wonders. A self-taught mechanic, he used his skills to improve the machinery on the farm where he lived. This led him to become a successful car dealer in Oklahoma, and it was here that he first heard about Louis Blériot's crossing of the English Channel in a monoplane in 1909, and he was convinced that he could build something similar. The monoplane seemed so much simpler and more elegant than the biplanes that proliferated at the time. When he eventually saw a flying circus at Oklahoma City, he was sold. Selling his dealership, he set about building his first aeroplane. The man, of course, was Clyde Vernon Cessna, and his impetuous decision would eventually grow into the manufacturing marvel that was going to become the Henry Ford of the air. Convinced he could make as much as $10,000 from flying exhibitions, he moved to New York and spent some time learning about construction at the factory there. Happy he could build a flying machine, he then spent the enormous sum of $7,500 on a kit that he would assemble, adding his own engine, a modified Elbridge four-cylinder, two-stroke, 40-horsepower, water-cooled motorboat engine. He took his finished aircraft to some salt plains about 35 miles from his home, and with his brother Roy set about becoming an aviator. His first effort ended with an ignominious ground loop that damaged the machine and Clyde needed to find another hundred dollars to fix it. Once it was suitably patched up, the Cessna brothers returned and tried again. Again they were unsuccessful. For ten days they lived in a tent, eating little more than flapjacks, working on their aircraft every time a failed effort ended in a cracker. In one attempt, Clyde hurt himself so badly he ended up on a pallet for several days. It was after twelve failed attempts that Cessna made his famous quote, but on the thirteenth time, as salty dust and sand burned his brother's face, 
He signalled him to let go, and Clyde accelerated the aircraft that he called Silver Wings across the flats. Fighting to keep the machine straight in gusty wind conditions, he slowly left the ground beneath him and rose to fifty feet. This actually presented a problem, as Clyde hadn't learned how to turn yet, and with the engine spluttering, he needed to land. A lesson on how turning increases the stalling speed of an aircraft was about to be impressed on him, as he worked the rudder to aim his machine into a clear area. Inevitably, silver wings hit the ground, bounced and came to rest in some trees. Despite his crash, the crowds that had scoffed at his early failures changed their tone and began calling him a daring hero and nicknamed him the Birdman of Enid. Forgetting his earlier promise to burn his aircraft, he continued to learn until he made a successful five-mile flight, landing at the same place he took off from. In December 1912, Cessna made a solemn decision. He sent a message to his mother in Rago, Kansas. We'll make a flying trip home Saturday, he wrote. He shipped his plane by rail, assembled it at the station and flew home. Circling over the family farm, he landed near the front yard and climbed down from the cockpit whilst his mother watched. Cessna rushed to give her a kiss on the cheek. "'Beats old Dobbin, doesn't it, mother?' he asked. Buoyed by his success, he cut his ties with the automobile industry entirely and took up flying full-time, often appearing at holiday events and county fairs. He built a factory and opened a flight school, but when the First World War started, the flying market ground to a halt. In the years after the war, Cessna joined Walter Beach and Lloyd Stearman to found the Travel Air Manufacturing Company in Wichita, Kansas. After a couple of years, Clyde split from his partners over design disputes, that old argument of monoplane versus biplane, and set up his own company. In 1927, the Cessna Aircraft Corporation was formed, and there began a line of successful designs, starting with the Cessna Model A, a high-wing, four-seat, single-engined monoplane tourer. The CW6 was a six-seater, and the DC6 a four-seater version, which was primarily sold to the Army Air Corps. Despite the success of these machines, the Great Depression led to a catastrophic drop in sales and the company filed for bankruptcy, closing in 1931. However, as the economy recovered, so did the Cessna Company. Clyde reopened his Wichita plant in '36, but he soon passed it on to his nephews, returning to a life of farming, although he often came back in a ceremonial capacity. The company went from strength to strength, but all the aircraft followed the same basic design of a single-engine, fixed-undercarriage, high-wing monoplane. The Airmaster C-Series was a great success, as was the twin-engine trainer, the T-50, which sold to the U.S. Army and the Canadian Air Force. However, 
Cessna was yet to build that ubiquitous light aircraft which was to become its enduring legacy. The heritage can be seen in the all-metal Cessna 140, named by the U.S. Flight Instructors Association as the outstanding plane of the year in 1948, but it wasn't until 1955 that the Cessna 172 made an appearance. The first production model was delivered in 56, and it remains in production to this very day. It started life as a nose-wheel version of the tail-dragger 170, and it became an overnight success. In its first year of production, over 1,400 were built. An advertisement in the Time magazine claimed, New Cessna 172 makes flying like driving. It's true, you can learn to fly the amazing new Cessna 172 into the sky, back down to the ground, thanks to Cessna's patented landomatic gear. The exciting Cessna 172 makes the convenience, speed, flexibility of flying practical for you because you can fly it yourself. Save on travel costs. Takes you where you want to go, when you want to go. Only $8,750. The complete air fleet for every business need. Over the years, a number of small modifications were applied, a swept-back fin and a lowered rear deck, allowing the incorporation of Omnivision, which in reality was a rear window. There were a variety of choices for engine power, an optional constant-speed propeller, higher tank capacity, wheel fairings, I'm sorry America, I refuse to call them wheel pants, and a mod that allowed the use of automobile gasoline. The original version used a lever, known as the Johnson bar, to lower the flaps, but by 1964 this had changed to electric actuation. Of course, there were many more minor changes, but the basic design of the 172 remained. The military T-41 Mescalero version was purchased by 25 countries and over 1,000 were delivered to the U.S. military alone. It's often debated as to why the 172 and its smaller cousin, the two-seat 150, have become the staple of flight training schools across the world. It's certainly sturdy and has a forgiving nature. Its high wing means that students get a good view of the ground making it easier to land, something that Cessna's marketing department called Landomatic. It's reliable and convenient, and has been called the Honda Civic of aircraft. Big enough to be stable and small enough to be economical. Every mechanic knows how to fix it, and spares are always available. It's relatively comfortable, cheap, and easy to maintain. It may not be fast, Generally, its maximum speed is around 140 miles an hour, but it could go from Berlin to Belfast or New York to Madison, Wisconsin, on one tank of gas. More pilots have earned their wings flying the 172 than on any other aircraft, said Doug May, the vice president of piston aircraft at Cessna. The 172 has also performed some amazing feats of flight. In 1958, Robert Tim and John Cook took off from McCarran Airfield in Las Vegas in a used 172 named Hacienda 
as part of a fundraising stunt for a cancer charity. They didn't land again for 64 days, 22 hours, 19 minutes and 5 seconds. During that period of over nine weeks, food and water were hauled up by bucket after formating on a chase car on a long straight stretch of highway and dropping a rope. To help them pull the bucket aboard, the right door was replaced by an accordion-style door that could be easily opened in flight. In a similar manner, fuel was pumped through a hose passed up to the aircraft from a fuel truck, something they did 128 times. Engine oil was dribbled into the engine through a pipe that passed through the firewall. If you're wondering what happened to the results of their bathroom breaks, well, the desert is a big place. Early in the record-breaking flight, the electric generator failed, so a champion wind-driven generator was passed up and bodge-taped onto a wing strut, where the little propeller was free to turn in the slipstream. What little power it produced was transferred through a wire plugged into the aircraft's cigarette lighter socket. From now on, the only cockpit lighting would be a little string of fairy lights. There was only one seat in the 172 since the rest of the cabin was used by the resting pilot, who slept on a pad. Eventually, with the engine clocking up, 1,558 hours of continuous operation, its output began to deteriorate to the point where they could hardly climb away from their support vehicles, and they landed. After the flight, Cook said, Next time I feel in the mood to fly endurance, I'm going to lock myself in our garbage can with the vacuum cleaner running. That's until my psychiatrist opens up for business in the morning. The amazing little Hacienda 172 can still be seen at McCarran International Airport, hanging in the passenger terminal. The record set by Tim and Cook still stands to this day. The 172 also hit the headlines in 1968, when the German student Matthias Rust flew one from Helsinki to Moscow, right through the supposedly impenetrable air defence system that surrounded the city, and although he was detected by missile systems, permission to launch wasn't given in time. Fighters were scrambled, but they intercepted the wrong aircraft. Rust flew over the city for some time, and eventually landed on a bridge right next to Red Square. Remarkably, the trolley car wires that were usually over the bridge had only been removed that day for maintenance. After taxiing past St Basil's Cathedral, he stopped about a 100 metres from Red Square, where he was greeted by curious passers-by and was asked for his autograph. It took two hours before he was finally arrested. For a while after the incident, Red Square was jokingly referred to by Muscovites as Shiemet Yivo 3, Shiemet Yivo 1 and 2 being the two terminals at Moscow's main international airport. Rust was jailed for four years, but officially pardoned after 14 months. The incident actually helped Mikhail Gorbachev, the Premier, to implement many reforms by allowing him to dismiss numerous military officials opposed to his policies for incompetence. Sadly, some famous people have met their end in a 172. 
1964, Ken Hubbs, a baseball player for the Chicago Cubs, flew his 172 into poor weather and crashed. The boxer Rocky Marciano was returning home for a birthday party in 1969 when he crashed into a tree, also in poor weather. However, overall, the 172 has a very good safety record and is safer than all comparative aircraft such as the Piper Cherokee, the AA-5 Traveller and the Aerospatial Tobago. In particular, it is about half as likely to be involved in IMC-related accidents than other light singles. In 1985, Cessna stopped building light aircraft in the U.S. for a while because of excessive product liability lawsuits, but production continued at the Reims factory in France. More recently, production was started in China, and the 172S is still being made at Wichita. There may even be a place for this long-lived aircraft well into the future, as Cessna has announced that it is developing an electric version in conjunction with the company By Energy. I suspect that once we've finished our basic lessons in flying, there may be many pilots who would want to move on to something more sleek and fast, but when all is said and done, I suspect that most of us would look back on our days mastering flight with a Cessna trainer with great nostalgia. I know that I do when I think back to that special day in 1973 when I first soloed in a Cessna 150. Lots of pilots look down on the humble Cessna 172, but by some distance it is the most produced aircraft in history, there having been more than 44,000 built, and the aircraft has been in constant production for over 60 years. Add the Cessna 172 and 150 trainers together and we get over 75,500 aircraft, a figure that beats the production of the next two in the list, the wartime Aleutian IL-2 and the Messerschmitt BF-109 combined. Not bad for an aircraft that dares call its autopilot Navomatic, its windows Omnivision, its instruments quick scan, its beacon omni flash, and its landing gear landomatic.